Ten years ago, in the catalog that accompanied the Gilbert Stewart exhibition that Carrie Barrett and I co-organized, I wrote an extended discussion of Stewart's portraits of George Washington. About the Lansdowne portrait, I wrote that the commission of the painting in 1796 celebrated the political alliance of a small group of American and British statesmen and investors that included William Bingham, William Petty, the Marquis of Lansdowne, John Jay, and the London merchants Samuel Vaughan and Francis Barron. I proposed that the portrait, a gift from Bingham to Lansdowne, referred to the new treaty with England, now known as the Jay Treaty, and that Washington's pose represented his address to Congress on December 8, 1795, which included his support of the treaty. The paper, pen, and inkwell suggested the signing of a document. Thus I wrote, if the portrait refers to the Jay Treaty and this powerful alliance of British and American investors, it can be seen as an example of the use of portraits to celebrate political alliances, especially at times of treaties. Today, in the context of this symposium, I will reassert this interpretation, asking about the nature of the commission, the imagery, and the political context. Is it useful to think about the portrait as a diplomatic <coughs> gift before it became a public icon of Washington as president? Central to this commission is the political alliance between the English statesman William Petty Marcus of Lansdowne and the American merchant William Bingham. They met in London soon after the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783. Bingham had published a pamphlet on the importance of opening up commercial relations between England and America, a political viewpoint he shared with Lansdowne, who as Lord Shelburne had been Prime Minister during the initial negotiations for the treaty. John Jay, a negotiator of the treaty, was a third important figure in this relationship. He commissioned this portrait from the young American artist Gilbert Stewart in London in 1784, after the treaty was signed, and he also commissioned a replica as a gift for William Bingham. Artist John Trumbull later found the two portraits unfinished in a London pawn shop, and he completed this one. Stewart later finished the other, but Bingham never owned either. After the Binghams returned to Philadelphia in 1786, they remained in regular contact with Lansdowne. Both supported the need for a new treaty with England that would allow more open trade for American merchants. In 1794, John Jay, now Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, was appointed by President Washington to go to London to negotiate this new treaty. Bingham wrote to Lansdowne at the time that Jay was on his way to London, confirming their shared view of the treaty and stressing, stressing the Federalist support. Quote, this mission of Mr. Jay is founded on the purest and most sincere views of preserving peace and of opening the door of reconciliation. And it is hoped the result will be to prevent the horrors of war from being introduced into a country which at present is the abode of peace and happiness. The federal or moderate party who urge this measure are very solicitous for its success. I am rather inclined to believe that Mr. Jay will fortunately accomplish the views of those who send him. Bingham stressed the interests of British manufacturers, American ability to paint the raw, to supply the raw materials, and the, quote, increasing population and increasing wealth, unquote, in America that will, quote, create a corresponding demand for British manufacturers, which show how well our well-being advances her prosperity. Stewart painted the second portrait of Jay in New York City. 
He had returned to the United States in 1793 after 18 years in London and Dublin, where he worked with Benjamin West before becoming a successful portrait painter. His goal, on return, was to paint a portrait of George Washington. His explanation is well known. I expect to make a fortune by Washington alone. I calculate upon making a plurality of his portraits, whole lengths, and if I should be fortunate, I will repay my English and Irish creditors. <laughs> Jay provided the needed letter of introduction to the president, and Stuart sought a meeting with George Washington in Philadelphia in December 1794. The exact timing of his first portrait of the president is not known. It now seems likely that he painted Washington the following September, 1795. But by April 1795, he had moved his studio from New York to Philadelphia. And on April 20th, he drew up this, quote, list of gentlemen who are to have copies of the portrait of the president of the United States. The list was first published by the artist's daughter, Jane Stewart, in 1876 and has been cited by many authors since that time. However, to my knowledge, it has not been seen often in its original form, and I'm grateful to Samuel Four, a manuscript librarian at the Harlan Crow Library in Dallas, for permission to show it today. It's a fairly recent acquisition by that library and occurred after the Stewart Show and 10 years ago. The list names each patron, Um, list names each patron and the number of copies he commissioned, and the notation of the price, $100 or $200. $100 was Stewart's price for a bust portrait, and I think that the notation of the price is, it indicates that the person had paid that amount already for the portrait. The slide begins with people that Stewart knew in London, Dublin, and New York which includes Spanish Chargé d'Affaire, Jose Jardines, who ordered five copies, uh, whose portrait Stuart had painted in New York, the Marquis of Lansdowne, Lord Viscount Cremorne, who was the husband of William Penn's granddaughter, artist Benjamin West, the Messrs. Pollock, the Pollocks were Irish merchants in New York, George, Hugh, and Carlyle Pollock, and at the bottom, near the bottom, at the bottom, Colonel Aaron Burr. The second from the bottom is John Vaughan, who ordered two copies. And he's only one of the only, uh, one of only four men on this list today, uh, who can be documented today as owners of an example of Stewart's portrait of Washington. He sent one of these two to Samuel Vaughan in London. And it's this painting on the right that, you, that Rembrandt Peel described many years later as the, quote, first original portrait painted by Stuart in September 1795. And thus, this first portrait type has become known as the Vaughan portrait. The success of this first image led to two new commissions from Washington, for Washington, of Washington. One was the commission from Martha Washington to be a pair for a pair of portraits, which when finished would hang at Mount Vernon. However, they remained unfinished in Stuart's studio until his death in 1828 and are now known as the Athenaeum portraits because they were owned for 150 years by the Boston Athenaeum. The second, of course, is the full-length portrait known today as the Lansdowne portrait. And I'm showing here the engraving next to the portrait because the black and white image clarifies the details of Washington's velvet suit, 
which are hard to see in the original. But you can see it upstairs if you go upstairs and see the painting. Washington wore this black velvet suit and the dress sword whenever he appeared as president on public occasions. This was a conscious decision on his part. He gestures to the right and looks in that direction. The ornate chair and table, columns, and a curtain are fictional, intended to represent the whole of Congress. The imagery in the portrait refers to Washington's past and present leadership. The decorative elements of the furniture are derived from the Great Seal of the United States. Under the table are large books titled General Orders, American Revolution, and Constitution and Laws of the United States, referring to Washington's role as commander of the American army and as president of the Constitutional Convention of 1787. The books on the table are titled Federalist, representing the published Federalist Papers, and the Journal of Congress, which recorded the everyday actions and votes of Congress. Also on the table are two rolled up papers, which unfortunately for us have no writing on them, and a silver inkwell with a quill pen, together with Washington's black hat, decorated with a black cockade. The, slot, the sky in the background has dark clouds on the left, and in the upper right, a rainbow. How does this complex composition relate to the Jay Treaty? The treaty was signed in London on November 19, 1794, and ratified by the United States Senate on June 24, 1795. The following December 8th, President Washington spoke to Congress in person about treaties and foreign alliances, including his support for the Jay Treaty, which then went into effect the following February. However, the House of Representatives resisted appropriation of the funds needed to carry out its provision, finally passing the bill on April 30th by one vote. William Bingham, a senator from Pennsylvania, commissioned Stewart to paint the full length that April during this tense legislative process. Bingham had been a leader in the Senate ratification of the treaty and intended the portrait as a gift to the Marquis of Lansdowne, whose efforts supported the treaty in England. I propose that Washington's oratorical pose and setting, as well as the books, document, and inkwell are references to his support of the treaty. Evidence to this comes from two contemporary newspaper descriptions of the portrait. After the original gift was shipped to Lord Lansdowne in London in 1796, the London newspaper, the Oracle and Public Advertiser, described Washington in this way, in the portrait. The dress he wears is plain black velvet. He has his sword on, upon the hilt of which one hand rests while the other is extended, as the figure is standing and addressing the hall of assembly. This is the key sentence. The point of time is that when he recommended inviolable union between America and Great Britain. The background is made up of a state chair, columns of the hall, and some clouds." End quote. The following year, the Timepiece, a New York newspaper, described another version of the portrait, calling particular attention to the meaning of the clouds and the rainbow. Quote, a full length of General Washington, largest life, represented in the position of addressing Congress for the last time before his retirement from public life. He is surrounded with allegorical emblems of his public life and the service to his country which are highly illustrative of the great and tremendous storms which have frequently prevailed. These storms have abated, and the appearance of the rainbow is introduced in the background as a sign. The reference to Washington, quote, addressing Congress the last time, quote, has in the past 
been assumed to mean his farewell address. This was the second to last year of Washington's second term in office. But the farewell address was never delivered in person, instead it was published. And I think the timepiece article refers to Washington's December 8, 1775 address to Congress about foreign alliances and treaties, which in fact was his last address to Congress in person. Whose ideas are represented in the composition? From the very limited contemporary documentation, we only know that Stuart was assisted in designing the composition by architect Samuel Blodgett, whose role was described many years later by his nephew. I wish to call attention to the adjuncts to the full-length portrait of Washington. I believe that the books, papers, drapery, table, chair, etc. in this picture were designed and sketched by Samuel Blodgett of Philadelphia. One visual source was suggested by Charles Henry Hart when he was director of the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts over a hundred years ago. And this suggestion has survived almost unchallenged. This is that Stuart borrowed the setting and pose from the engraving by Pierre Dravet of Hyacinth Rigaud's portrait of Bishop Bossuet. But we now know much more about Stuart's English portraiture than did Hart for his contemporaries. Stuart had spent 18 years painting portraits in London and Dublin, and had successfully adopted most features of the contemporary British practice and techniques of portrait painting, which included painting life-size full-lengths. One telling example in this discussion is his full-length portrait of John Foster, Speaker of the Irish House of Commons, who Stuart painted in Dublin in 1790, just prior to his return to America. Foster is depicted in the Irish House of Commons, and it's literally correctly in the Irish House of Commons. The pose and setting, the robes he wears, and his formal wig are symbolic of his current office, while the papers and books on the table refer to past achievements as a member of the house. This formula is identical to that used in the Lansdowne portrait. Most important, what was the purpose of the commission? The contemporary documentation ascribes the commission to William Bingham and his wife, Anne Willing Bingham. Later evidence about Stuart suggests a greater role for Lansdowne. My interpretation is that Lansdowne wished to have a portrait of Washington. His name does appear on the 1795 list. He may even have been one of the patrons in England who encouraged Stuart to return to the United States to paint Washington's portrait. However, the idea of commissioning a full length was probably Bingham's, or possibly also Stuart's. And it was Bingham who paid Stuart $1,000, a lot of money, for the portrait. The earliest evidence for Bingham's role is Washington's letter to Stuart, dated April 11, 1796. He wrote to ask where the sitting for the portrait would be. Quote, I am under promise to Mrs. Bingham, and you can read, this is the, the part at the top, this is in Washington's handwriting. I am under promise to Mrs. Bingham to sit for you tomorrow at 9 o'clock, and wishing to know if it be convenient to you that I should do so, and whether it shall be at your house, as she talked of the State House, I send this note to you to ask information. After the painting was shipped to London that November, Bingham stressed her role when asking the American minister in London, Rufus King, for assistance in delivering the portrait. Quote, I have sent by the present opportunity a full length of the portrait of the president, full length portrait of the president. It is executed by Stuart with a great deal of enthusiasm and in his best manner, and does credit, great credit to the American artist. It is intended as a present on the part of Mrs. Bingham to Lord Lansdowne. 
As a warm friend of the United States and a great admirer of the President, it cannot have a better destination, end quote. Mrs. Bingham's role was also referred to by the young banker Alexander Baring, who was at that time in Philadelphia, and had recently engineered the purchase of some of Bingham's lands in Maine by the Baring Brothers firm in London. Baring wrote his father, Francis Baring, in London, quote, Mrs. Bingham, who received many attentions from Lord Lansdowne when in England, has determined to make his lordship a present of a very fine full-length portrait of the president. It is the strongest likeness I ever saw and painted by Stuart. Pray assist him in having it got through the Custom House and presented at Lansdowne House, where I'm sure it will be a welcome guest. After the portrait arrived in London, Anne Bingham was the person that Lansdowne thanked most effusively. Quote, a very fine portrait of the greatest man living in a magnificent frame found its way into my hall with no one thing left for me to do regarding it except to thank the amiable donor of it. It is universally approved and admired, and I see with satisfaction that there is no one who does not turn away from everything else to pay homage to General Washington. <clears throat> Among many circumstances which contribute to enhance the value of it, I shall always consider the quarter from whence it comes as most flattering, and I look forward with the greatest pleasure to the time of showing you and Mr. Bingham where I have placed it. He also thanked Bingham, who we don't have that letter, but he indirectly, Bingham, commented to Rufus King, I received your letter of April 26 with several enclosures from the Marquis of Lansdowne, who I am pleased to find is much gratified with the portrait of the president. Lansdowne also wrote Mrs. Bingham's brother-in-law, William Jackson, describing the gift as, quote, a magnificent compliment, and the respect I have for both Mr. and Mrs. Bingham will always enhance the value of it to me and my family, <clears throat> end quote. In his letter, Lansdowne referred to one of the major clauses in the treaty, the Jay Treaty, requiring Britain to give up its military posts along the northwest border of the United States. Lansdowne wrote, quote, I cannot express to you the satisfaction I have felt in seeing the forts given up. I may tell you that up to the very last debate in the House of Lords, the ministry did not appear to comprehend the policy upon which the boundary line was drawn and persist in still considering it as a measure of necessity, not of choice. However, it is now indifferent who understands it. The deed is done, and a strong foundation laid for eternal amity between England and America. His view of Washington was clear. Quote, General Washington's conduct is above all praise. He has left a noble example to sovereigns and nations, present and to come. At the time of the commission, Stuart was most concerned about his own income from the sale of engravings. He complained to Lansdowne in a letter never sent that Bingham had failed to secure rights to the engravings. Quote, I had counted upon the emoluments that might arise from a portrait of George Washington engraved by an artist of talent. It was there with, therefore with particular pleasure that I found myself invited by Mr. Bingham to take the portrait of President Washington to be presented to your lordship. Stuart was understandably angry when this engraving appeared uh, by James Heath, published actually at the wrong date there, it's published in 1800. And it's particularly, as many of you probably know, annoyed because the engraving gives Stuart's first name as Gabriel, not Gilbert. <laughs> Later in life, he seems to have stressed Lansdowne's role in the commission. William Dunlap wrote in 1834, based on an interview that artist John Nagel had with Stuart in the 1820s, that, quote, the Marquis gave Mr. Stewart a commission to paint for him a full length to be sent to London. When the picture was nearly finished, Mr. Bingham 
a rich man of Philadelphia, waited upon Mr. Stewart and begged as a favor that he might be allowed the honor of paying for the picture and presenting it to the Marquis. Mr. Stewart, after taking time for deliberation, consented. He said that he gave his consent, thinking that the Marquis would be gratified by the compliment. This narrative agrees almost word for word with the account that Stewart's daughter Jane published years later in 1876. She wrote, quote, and she was born in 1812, so she was not present when the portrait was painted. Quote, Lord Lansdowne gave him a commission to paint for him a whole length of Washington to take to England. Mr. Bingham, a resident of Philadelphia, called upon Stewart and was very solicitous of having the honor of presenting the picture to his lordship. Stewart, knowing the extreme fastidiousness of the English nobility, declined, but Mr. Bingham persuaded him that it would be considered a compliment. Can this portrait be considered a diplomatic gift? Americans at this time had limited experience with the exchange of portraits and the signing of treaties. American artist John Trumbull, who served as Jay's secretary during the negotiations over the Jay Treaty, wrote to Jay on December 10, 1794, about portraits as diplomatic gifts. Mr. Burgess informed me that it was the established custom here to present to the foreign minister who concluded a treaty the portrait of the king elegantly set. I answered that I believed it to be otherwise with us, and that the officers of the United States were even prohibited to receive presents of any kind. I submit to your judgment how far my answer was right, and how far it was intended by the Constitution to prohibit the ministers of the United States receiving presents of this nature. Essentially, then, I think we can conclude, even though the, the gift went the other way, that the portrait was a private gift between political allies celebrating a treaty. However, in America, its success as a presidential image was immediate. Stewart began at least two replicas before the original was shipped to London. One was for Bingham, who later bequeathed it to the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, and the second was commissioned by New York merchant William Constable. Paul Stady has effectively called attention to the Federalists' politics of these men and has persuasively interpreted the Lansdowne portrait as a Federalist celebration of Washington's presidency. However, it is notable that the third replica belongs to the category of diplomatic portrait. This version was commissioned, and it's the one on the right, this version was commissioned in the fall of 1796 by another Federalist, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, who was the newly appointed American minister to the French court. Secretary of State Timothy Pickering later explained its fate to James McHenry. General Pickering, prior to his going to France, engaged Stuart to paint for him a full-length portrait of General Washington. General Pinckney desired me to pay the price, $500, for which he has Stuart's receipt. The general not being received by the French directory, the picture was not sent to him. Indeed, I never saw it. But it lays in my mind that you went to Stuart's when in Germantown on purpose to see it, and I presume the portrait was actually made. It is very likely, as many of us not now believe, not everyone agrees, but it's very likely that this third replica is the one now in the White House here in Washington. Stuart, in 1797, sold a version of the Lansdowne portrait to Gardner Baker, manager of the Tammany Society Museum in New York City, where it was placed on exhibit in February 1798. In 1800, immediately after Washington's death, the painting was purchased from Baker's estate with federal United States Treasury funds and placed on view almost immediately in the White House.
Stewart later denied authorship of the portrait numerous times, complicating questions of attribution, which have persisted to this day. What is without doubt, what he actually said was he didn't paint it, but he bargained for it. It's an interesting clue. What is without doubt is that this painting is the painting that Dolly Madison rescued from the advancing British army during the War of 1812. On August 23, 1814, when she could hear the cannons at the nearby Battle of Bladensburg, Maryland, she wrote to her sister, quote, I insist on waiting until the large picture of General Washington is secured, and it requires to be unscrewed from the wall. This process was found too tedious for these perilous moments. I have ordered the frame to be broken and the canvas taken out. It is done, and the precious portrait placed in the hands of two gentlemen of New York for safekeeping. And now, dear sister, I must leave this house, or the retreating army will make me a prisoner in it. This portrait was returned to the rebuilt, repainted, renamed White House in 1817, where it can be seen today generally in the background of many televised presidential events. Thank you very much.